are still dangerous. You can be my wingman anytime. Bullshit. You can be mine. This is Snails and Oysters. Hello and welcome to Snails and Oysters, the bi-weekly, bi-coastal, bi-sexual movie podcast. I'm Nat Roberts. And I'm Allie Rogers. And we are coming to you hot today with a topical episode uh, one that we actually planned out for once, something that's actually <laughs> relevant to the current discourse. I feel like we've actually been better at these lately. Yeah, yeah. It's really, it's part of the zeitgeist, or <laughs> yeah. is that the right word? <laughs> yeah, fear, uh, it's, it's both a blast from the past and incredibly au courant. <laughs> au courant, I like that a lot. That means served <laughs> with raisins, right? <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> yep, Top Gun is back, baby. All your favorite characters, your Mavericks, your Icemen. Your Goose, probably not. He's dead. Uh, yeah, but Goose's son. Goose's son, who right. has like Goose's exact mustache. That's hilarious. Um, now, I haven't actually watched the trailer yet for, for this new Top Gun. Uh, have you watched it? I, well, I saw the trailer on the big screen uh, oh, really? before uh, it played before the Northmen. And it was pretty hilarious because I just feel like in every other universe where I don't do a podcast <laughs> with you, <laughs> I never watch Top Gun. I never have any idea what this trailer means. But like every moment in the trailer is like a huge callback, it feels like, to the original film. You That's know, funny. To Iceman, to Goose, to Sun. And like some shots even just feel like a one-to-one, um, <laughs> which is just really funny to me because I'm like, I mean, if you haven't seen Top Gun since it came out, I I don't know how much you would remember, but yeah. <laughs> I had just seen it so recently. I was like, oh, my God. They were really playing up the nostalgia factor. And it was funny because another trailer that played right after it is for the last installment of Jurassic Park. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> so between the two, it just felt like, oh, my God, they are literally like everything going after again. the 80s babies. <laughs> like, yeah, the no- that same nostalgia wave. Oh, God, I'm so ready for it to be over. I'm so ready for everyone to get as sick of it as I am so that we can watch new movies again. (laughs) (laughs) So that the top box office draws can be new movies. New movies like The Northman. Exactly. Um, Yeah. Or Everything Everywhere All at Once. Check out our episode on that one. Uh, You know, scroll down a little bit. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) But for now, uh, we are... We are... Prisoners of our era. And so, (laughs) without further ado, uh, let's talk about Top Gun. Top Gun! Top Gun is a 1986 military drama directed by Tony Scott, starring Tom Cruise as rebellious naval aviator Pete Maverick Mitchell. The film's name comes from the real-life strike fighter tactics instructor program, better known as Top Gun, where Maverick and his best friend slash Rio, radar intercept officer, Goose, are sent to study aerial combat. At Top Gun, Maverick quickly establishes, let's call it an intense rivalry with his class's top pilot, Val Kilmer's Iceman, 
and a romance with instructor Charlie, played by Kelly McGillis. Or is it that he establishes a rivalry with instructor Charlie and an intense romance with Iceman? <laughs> Who's to say? Who's to say? Maverick's much-discussed hotshot attitude makes him an excellent intuitive pilot, but a poor strategist. And his brash style repeatedly brings him into conflict with his instructors, particularly Tom Skerritt's Viper and Michael Ironside's Jester. Since this is the 1980s, Maverick's attitude is fueled by the death of his father, an ace pilot who was lost in Vietnam and the final battle is still classified. After several weeks of fun hijinks and infamous volleyball games, uh, Maverick's time at Top Gun is cut short when Iceman inadvertently sends his and Goose's plane into a dangerous spin, forcing them to eject. Goose is killed in a freak accident, destroying Maverick's self-confidence. Goose! <laughs> Maverick resigns his commission and breaks off his relationship with Charlie, but is brought back into the Navy when Viper reveals that he was flying with Maverick's father the day he died and that Mitchell Sr. was a hero. <laughs> Maverick returns and graduates from Top Gun literally just walking into the graduation and he's almost immediately sent back to the South Pacific with Iceman to aid in a rescue operation. Despite Iceman's remaining doubts about Maverick, together they defeat six Russian MiGs in a dogfight and return to the aircraft carrier as friends. Just, just, just friends. friends. Just friends. Yeah, Maverick even gets back with Charlie too. So totally, totally friends. And he also starts teaching at Top Gun. The movie made a commercial splash on release, but even contemporary critics noted its heavily jingoistic themes and homoerotic undertones. But is Top Gun really a queer film, or do people just say that to piss off the homophobic people who like it? Let's discuss. Now, I had not seen Top Gun since the first time I saw it as a kid. Wow. Uh, I was probably like in middle school or high school. So I was aware of like its reputation. And probably at the time I was like, yeah, this is this is pretty, this is pretty phallic. But then when we were getting ready to do this episode, I started having I started second guessing myself, thinking like, is it really that homoerotic a movie? Like, is it enough to really justify this episode? And then the movie assuaged my doubts. (laughs) What's your history with Top Gun, Allie? Had you seen it before? I had never seen it before. And I do not care to see it again. No. (laughs) It's so dumb. It is so dumb. It is so dumb. But you you were probably like aware of it, right? Just through cultural osmosis. Eh, I mean, I knew there was a movie called Top Gun. But I truly cannot say that I knew anything beyond that. You know, I mean, there isn't much beyond that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's really, really light on the plot. Yep. It's so much planes in the air. Yep. That's it. You know what it was? This time around, I caught something that I had never noticed before. And maybe other people have pointed this out. But I don't think it makes sense to look at Top Gun as a military movie. It only makes sense to look at it as a sports movie. Because there's no It war. is kind of more like a sport. Yeah. Yeah. And it's about the competition between teammates, essentially. Yeah. It's It has more in common with, like, I don't know, uh, Major League than it does with Saving Private Ryan. Yeah, it's so weird because it really – it's like a war movie that takes place when there's no war. Right. You know? And there's kind of, like, obviously, I guess, like, the Cold War is ongoing and that's, like, the threat from the Russian MiGs. But it's, it's just so – 
weird because it's like most of the movie is just training for America. Yeah. Um, Rah, rah. Rah, 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 rah. Yeah. And even in 1986, the Cold War was getting ready to end. I think this was just a year or two before the Berlin Wall fell. Like this was in the middle of daytime. It's not even cold this Cold War. Yeah. Yeah. It was really interesting. I like watching it. I was just like, I don't understand this timing of this film. You know, like sometimes you get war films like during a conflict or immediately following a conflict or down the road and it's like trying to process the conflict. And this is just like random military. <laughs> and I think that's the that's really the key into the psychology of this movie is that it's 1986, Reagan is president. The last war America fought in was Vietnam and we got our asses kicked by a guerrilla force. Yeah. And so this this really is a portrait of a deeply deranged culture. <laughs> you know, yeah. like I, I don't mean to get that that like ivory tower that quickly in this conversation, but this is like this movie is the product of a deeply deeply disturbed yeah. culture. <laughs> like not just one person. But it's its relationship to masculinity, to violence, to women, to you know, weapons of war. The 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 fact that this does have more in common with a sports film, I think, displays like a very unsettled relationship to violence and warfare. Yeah. Where it's about asserting dominance and masculinity rather than what the best war films focus on, which is the human cost. Yeah, yeah. A hundred percent. And the human cost in this film is just just goose too high it's too high i cannot yeah. forgive this film for yeah what they did to goose <laughs> i know he's the one good character <laughs> i was literally like no 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 <laughs> like literally just repeating the word no when when goose was in an accident and then spent hours on <laughs> chat rooms or not chat rooms but like online boards where pilots were talking about the accident and like how it happened and who was responsible and if it could happen in real life like i've totally learned so much about fighter planes <laughs> <laughs> i'm surprised you dive that deep into it had to had to <laughs> yeah that's the thing. and it's so funny that it's like the movie like makes it this whole thing of maverick blaming himself and everybody's immediately telling him not to even though like from watching it it's like Iceman causes this. Like, well, it's interesting. I feel like I've done enough reading now yeah. to feel like I have a pretty good sense that the blame can really be shared between a Maverick and Iceman. True. And it was interesting because I was reading on this one board and this guy who was a pilot had written like, if Maverick, like Maverick never would have flown again. And like, and someone else has said Iceman would have been had a disciplinary proceeding because Maverick was yeah. flying too close. Yeah. To the planes. But also, ultimately, it's the government's fault. Another pilot. I was just about to say, yeah. Yeah. And the instructor's fault for, like, having this weird competitive environment set up where it's like, you know, you're you're having people compete against each other as they work together. It's completely, like, it's a recipe for disaster. Yeah. Not only that, but actually, apparently, those, that model of plane was known for, like, not all planes had that problem with jet wash, and this plane had it, like, particularly badly, but the government... Interesting. Yeah, but the government, they were, like, cheaper planes, so, yeah, there there was yeah. there was another pilot who commented, like, you know, this happened to my friend, like, a jet wash yeah. accident. Spin yeah, spin out. Yeah, and it's just because the government didn't want to pay more. That was an interesting part of the film. Like, they're always talking about how expensive the planes are. They're always like, yeah. the planes, the planes, and it's never like, your lives, your lives. No, seriously. I, I didn't notice that the first time I saw it, but this time watching it, I was like, there's so much commentary about the taxpayers and things like that. 
Um, but it's always used in like a negative light. Like it's always like, oh, you know, pencil pushing bureaucrats worried about the cost of the planes and things like that. Yeah. You know, whereas the real men are up there flying intuitively, not think oh head empty, god. no thoughts, yeah. himbo. Oh my god. Oh my god. Did you like this movie like as a kid? Because no. it's definitely a movie that's more for not like I don't know. I I get I guess, like, I wouldn't blame a 12-year-old boy for liking this movie. Oh, sure. You know? I, I was a little older than that when I got saw it, it got I think. It, got so it. I, I had the mental acuity to be like, this is Snorrish. garbage. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, think, I think I enjoyed it in a so bad it's good sense. Sure. Um, and I, I almost definitely watched it with my dad, and so I, I bit my tongue right. <laughs> for some totally, of it. Totally, totally. I don't think he loves this movie. Like, uh, for context for the, the listener, my dad was a Marine uh, for many years. Uh, 22. Oh, Jesus. Um, but, <laughs> You're like yeah. many years. It's fully two decades, dude. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, and and now he has his private pilot's license. So anyway. Have I, you ever I, flown I, with him privately? I have actually twice now. He's he's a good pilot. Um, but yeah, anyway. Um, so I uh, part of my perception of this is also coming from being a military brat. Totally. This environment a little more intimately and knowing that this mentality represented by the film itself is probably the, the element of military culture that I find the most repugnant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Where yeah. It's, it's, you know, jingoistic, machismo driven. It's, it's ridiculous is what it is. It's, you know what, this, watching it this time, this movie reminded me the most of like Starship Troopers. Like it almost felt like a parody of the sort of neo-fash propaganda that a like militaristic authoritarian culture produces. You know, it's ludicrous. Yeah. I mean, it's just really like goofy i mean the comparison to sports is really good because i think this movie does a good job of kind of just being like it's fun to be in you know the air force yeah yeah it's fun to fly planes and just like play volleyball with the dudes and and the one person um at the beginning of the film um wait what's his name cougar cougar when he kind of has this basically a panic attack in the plane. Yeah. It's definitely, I don't think he's treated that badly, but it is kind of treated as like, oh, well, you don't want to be that guy. You know, you don't yeah. want to be him. Yeah, when really, he couldn't handle he it. He couldn't <laughs> handle it. He kind of burned out. And it's really like, and and actually I think his fate where he resigns is like kind of what um, Maverick that is choosing between, like, am I going to yeah. resign because of this trauma or like, keep going and first of all i was like i don't think you can just plop your wings down on someone's desk and like yeah, there's leave. a lot more paperwork involved right <laughs> right just be like i'm done i'm out of here like don't know that much about the armed forces but i know it's not just like sayonara <laughs> that's the thing i'm familiar with the life not with the the bureaucracy but uh i believe you would you would more likely just be reassigned right like you probably wouldn't you you could resign your commission right uh, but if you wanted to keep like health care benefits and pension and things like that, you would need to be honorably discharged. Right, right. Which would require a certain amount of clearance from the higher ups. Right. Yeah. And like, it's just presented so cleanly. Like you can just have a panic attack in a plane and then 20 minutes later, plop your wings down and leave. Yeah. I don't know. It was just, there's so much just like annoying masculinity in this movie. Oh, totally. Of just like the real men never have a panic attack when faced with death in a plane. You know, I don't know. It's just. That like panic is, like panic attack is something you overcome and push through and that grief is something. Like I, I find it so interesting 
interesting that the, the resolution of Maverick's grief over Goose is throwing his dog tags into the ocean. That was so startling. Yeah. And it really is. You're right. It's like a it's a moment that really shows you kind of what the the real philosophy yeah. of the film is, which is like moving on is letting go. Yeah. And forgetting. And forgetting. Yeah. Which is pretty like pretty wild <laughs> pretty wild yeah. lesson to learn and it's it's like explicitly stated in that monologue tom scarrett has where he's like trying to like you know rally maverick and get him back in the plane and he says like when the first one dies you die with them but you know you have to let it go yeah you're gonna lose so many more right again a really callous yeah. a really callous response to because it's not even a film, like we've said before, that's taking place during a war, on the front of a war. Yeah. It's like, this is like a freak accident, you know? And it's such a strange, yeah. callous response to a freak accident that I think even for people who had been in war would be startling and traumatic and upsetting. Absolutely. And like, yeah, yeah, it's so weird. It's really annoying too. Like, I feel, I, I think you'll know the technical term for this if there is one, but it's like feels so lazy to me to basically like kill one character mm. so that another character can grow you know oh yeah i mean i think if uh well <laughs> this is getting into the romantic element a little early but uh when it's a romantic partner it's called fridge stuffing right you know? totally <laughs> totally but yeah it's absolutely a lazy way of signifying that the the situation has changed and, you know, I think it's it's interesting because that mentality of you're going to lose more friends is true to life to a certain extent in the military. But that really is a much darker, more cruel version of it being presented. And yet it's presented as like paternal avuncular advice. Um, I think a great point of contrast would be something like The Razor's Edge, the Bill Murray movie. The first sequence of the film is Bill Murray's character fighting in World War One, and Pretty much the first day he arrives as an ambulance driver, another ambulance gets blown up and his CO just like goes on this monologue of like, they were losers, they were going to die anyway, they, you know, and it's this really disturbing scene. And then later his CO gets shot and Bill Murray says mm. he was worthless, he was useless, he was always going to die. And you see it as what it is, which is a deeply, deeply traumatized person trying to survive right As essentially like a really dysfunctional coping mechanism exactly right one that's going to catch up with you right it does catch up with that character uh pretty pretty quickly um and so it's it's interesting to see how this film with its rankly conservative perspective i don't think that it's an exaggeration to say that this is a conservative film sees that as a good thing, sees that as a positive image of masculinity yeah. as emotional repression. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's yeah, the military is jacked up. I don't think uh, we're, we're really pioneering any new territory with that one, but yeah. it is still really interesting to see. The one thing I'll say, I really just thought this movie was so boring, but yeah. the one thing I will say about it in terms of the lessons of the film, many of which I'm just like, Oh no, not this lesson. Yeah. This seems bad. I will say the one good thread of the movie is like, I feel like there's a lot of films where kind of hotshot man mm. is constantly being told to cool off. But then like the, the lesson of the movie is that actually you have to be a hotshot. You know what I mean? Yeah. This one does take a different tack where like he truly, Maverick truly is like confronted with the consequences of how reckless he can be in the air yeah. and then does change like yeah 
changes a little bit in terms of just deciding to do what everyone asked him to do all film, which was to just yeah. fly a little bit yeah. more normal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Support his wingman. Support you know, his never wingman. Leave, never leave never the wingman. Never abandon your wingman. Right. You know? Right. And so like, I mean, it's kind of hilarious though, that that is like the lesson, you know, it's like, yeah, this is all about a man who literally can't take direction until his friend dies. <laughs> yeah. Like, Although I will say it's weird because it's also like, you you see like in that in the introductory moment for Maverick is when Cougar has his panic attack and Maverick flies back despite being low on fuel to like guide him back to the runway. Yeah. And so his establishing character moment is looking out for his wingman. Right. But I don't know. It's it's weird. It's story-wise, it's a weird movie. Speaking of like it's not a war movie, it's a sports movie. It's not really a movie. It's more like a music video than anything else. Oh my like God, it's an extended yeah. Kenny Loggins music video or Berlin as well. <laughs> but yeah, like the use the scenes with music are much more iconic than the rest. Like the volleyball scene, the sex scene, the fighter pilot scenes. Like, these are the things you really remember from Top Gun. The dialogue is mostly, you're a hot shot, but you get results. My dad died. (laughs) It's also so funny because everyone in the movie who's telling him, like, you got to cool off, hot shot, is also then... Saying he's a genius. Almost in the same sentence saying, but never cool off because you you burn so bright. Like, they're always telling him giving him mixed messages and being like rein it in but never do like always be the same and it's like yeah but never change stay golden pony boy yeah Yeah. it's just so goofy the whole movie is so goofy the oh gosh it truly is it it, uh, it's so goofy (laughs) yeah that's it it really is just a portrait of the Reagan slash Thatcher era of neoconservative ascendancy. Yes. Where it's just stupidity was the name of the game. Smart people were the enemy. Be dumb, be strong, kill things, yeah. and you'll be fine. Yeah, yeah. So let's let's get into the, the real reason we're here, which is yes. the sexuality of the film. Because it's pervasive. Like from the from the jump, this is a very sexual movie. Like um, you know, these like l- longing montages of very phallic fighter jets and missiles, and like you know, I, th- that opening montage set to Danger Zone <laughs> is such a like. It's so. It, it's it's like a metaphor for the male orgasm where it's all this build up, build up, build up, and then the screaming jet flies right, out. Right, right. You know? Uh, and that just, that imagery pervades the entire movie. It's interesting actually to look a little bit into the history of why Top Gun is this notoriously queer film or homoerotic film. Mm-hmm. There were several contemporary critics, like I said, who, who caught on to it. Pauline Kael said uh, that the movie is a shiny homoerotic commercial. Uh, Frank Rich said it's a jingoistic film about bomber pilots in which the men look like Bruce Weber models and dressed accordingly. <laughs> but the, the the thing that really cemented it, that idea in the public consciousness, it was actually a, a scene in a long forgotten romantic comedy called Sleep With Me, where Quentin Tarantino has a cameo in a party scene as himself ranting about how Top Gun is secretly a movie about Maverick's 
struggle with his homosexuality. Interesting. Interesting. Here, if you want, I can send you the clip and you can watch it. And yeah, we can discuss send me the that. clip. Send me the clip. <laughs> you should play this in the episode, Nat. I think I will. You know what one of the greatest fucking scripts ever written in the history of Hollywood is? What? Top Gun. Oh, come on. Top, Top Gun is fucking great. What is Top Gun? You think it's a story about a bunch of fighter pilots? Yeah, it's about a bunch of guys waving their dicks around. It is a story about a man's struggle with his own homosexuality. That's serious. That is what Top Gun is about, man. You've got Maverick, all right? He's on the edge, man. He's right on the fucking line, all right? And you've got Iceman and all his crew. Right. They're gay. And they are they represent the gay man, right. all right? And they're saying, go. Go the gay way. Go the gay way. He could go both ways. What about Kelly McGillis? Kelly McGillis. She's 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 heterosexuality. She's saying no 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 no. Go the normal way. Play by the rules. Go the normal way. And they're saying no. Go the gay way. He goes to her house, right? All right. It looks like they're gonna have sex. You know, they're just kind of sitting back. He's taking a shower and everything. They don't have sex. He gets on the motorcycle, drives away. She's like, what the fuck? What the fuck is going on here? Right. Next scene. Next scene, you see her. She's in the elevator. She is dressed like a guy. She's got the, the cap on. She's got the uh, aviator glasses. She's wearing the same jacket that the Iceman wears. She is okay. This how I gotta get this guy. This guy's going towards the gateway. But the real ending of the movie is when they fight the medics at the end. All right, because he has passed over into the gateway. They are this gay fighting fucking force, all right? And they're beating the Russians. The gays are beating the Russians, all right? And it's over, and they fucking land. And Iceman's been trying to get Maverick the entire time. Finally, he's got him, all right? And what is the last fucking line that they have together? They're all hugging and kissing and happy with each other. And Ice comes up to Maverick, and he says, Man, you can ride my tail in yeah. time. And what does Maverick say? Maverick, you can ride my... So that's that's really where this th- this theory comes from, and I think it, it's pretty much where it still is today. It's the idea that the movie is really about you know the real romance of the film isn't between Tom Cruise and Kelly McGillis, but between Tom Cruise and Val Kilmer. So uh, thoughts. <laughs> well, so it's interesting. I definitely in the first scene between Val Kilmer, Iceman, and Maverick. I was like, the chemistry is insane. And it's like that's the thing. And the way that they filmed it, like it literally feels so much like flirting. Yeah. Flirting and that kind of almost like Jane Austen sparring. Their first scene together is they're in class and they like see each other and make eyes at each other. Like it's a fucking romantic comedy. Yes, yeah. So I guess not that so I guess I'm thinking but of their, their the first second, conversation. Their first conversation. Right. Yeah. And it feels very rom-commy and it's funny like I kind of was waiting for that to develop but I actually felt like it was like most present in the first third of the film yeah and then I feel like it just like fades into the subconscious of the film and is a little less present but I mean I do think there's so much about this film that is like very homoerotic. But I also think there's a lot about any same-sex space in a heteronormative culture that can be very homoerotic because when the possibility of like 
homosexuality has been just kind of like dispelled from the imagination, then everyone's like, oh, you know, right. I don't know. Um, but yeah, the chemistry off the charts, off the Absolutely. charts between Val Kilmer and Tom Cruise. <laughs> I think you're right. Their rivalry kind of gets lost in the middle after Goose dies. Like they don't, they just don't have many scenes together. But I think part of the reason that people read so much into their relationship is because they have the same sort of chemistry that the movie tries to build between Cruz and McGillis, but they do it better. Like it's that combative rivalry, like debate sort of chemistry, like a Jane Austen novel, like Much Ado About Nothing. It's just that Tom Cruise and Val Kilmer have more chemistry together, so it's it's way hotter when they're arguing yeah. than when Kelly McGillis is, like, shouting at Tom Cruise. Yeah, and I also think Kelly McGillis, even if they had more chemistry together, which they don't, like, I really found their sex scene, like, were so off-putting. Oh I was my like, God, ugh, yeah. like... This is just ugh, gross. I mean, who shoots a who shoots a sex scene in a blue wash? Like only if you want to make it look as impersonal as possible. I mean, all the colors of this film were weird. This was such an orange yeah. red film, and then like yeah. the sex. It's like a Michael Bay ugh. film, frankly. It's the predecessor of the Bay yeah. style. Yeah, but also like Kelly McGillis. It, it's just like she's not exactly his equal. She kind of is like the more in, intelligent, educated right. astrophysicist, you know, has higher yeah. security clearance. So it's like, even when they're sparring, it's just like, she doesn't really understand him where like the chemistry between Iceman and Maverick, what's so like kind of exciting about them is they're kind of two different sides of the same coin. They're both excellent, incredible right. pilots. It's just that Iceman is, is, ice, is cold. ice cold and is a pilot of like total control and like textbook doing everything correctly and Maverick is a more instinctual. So it kind of plays in like like the opposite to track. Totally. And also like equals. equals Whereas yeah. like as you were it's saying, equals. it's also like it, the, the power dynamic between Kelly McGillis and Tom Cruise is weird because it just reads, we can get into the way they meet, um, but it just reads as Tom Cruise disrespecting her constantly. It doesn't read as flirtatious banter it reads as you know kelly mcgillis is overwhelmed by her desire for tom cruise and tom cruise can't help but denigrate a woman in a position of authority yeah it's just not exciting like it's really not it's but Iceman and maverick woof <laughs> that's where it is that's where it's at <laughs> yeah but it's it's interesting that like that sexuality i, I talked about how it shows up in Everything like there's there's like literally the first scene at Top Gun is in this classroom yeah. and they're watching dogfight footage yeah. and one pilot like leans over to his Rio and says I have a hard on and his Rio says don't tease me yeah like yeah it's obviously it's it's meant to play as this like male bravado like you know how hyper straight guys will always be like hitting on each other as a way of like asserting like I'm so straight that even saying gay stuff doesn't make me gay yeah but then um, it comes right back but, around to gay. <laughs> Yeah, it just comes right back around. Um, and especially the relationship between all the Rios and their aviators, like, it's like a top and bottom relationship, well, it frankly. Li- yeah, I mean, it literally is. Like, you literally, like, oh, it just kind of is. Yeah, like, literally the Rio just sits in the back and encourages the, the aviator uh, and does other things, obviously. Yeah. Um, but, and then that's what makes... Uh, Maverick and Iceman, again, their relationship so perfect because they're two tops who fell in love. And this is what happens when two tops want to fuck yeah. each other is they're constantly vying for who is the top. Yes, yes, Gun. yeah. Oh, my God. And then someone gets killed because of that. 
Yep. And then classic yeah, queer that's conundrum. Like, that's why you can't do top and top because yeah, it's, uh, yeah. people get Someone hurt. Gets yeah. hurt and it's usually a bottom. Yeah, I don't know. What did you think of the homoeroticism? Because you came away from the film feeling like, oh my god, like yeah. I bet there's so many porn parodies of this on oh, Pornhub. Yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah, and also like I, it, it coming to it as someone a little more older, someone with a greater political understanding, it has this like very Greco-Roman quality to it where hmm. it's all about the perfection of the male body, the physicality yes. of the male body. Yeah. You know, the, the volleyball scene, as ridiculously campy as it is, is constantly emphasizing their muscularity, their physical prowess, their competitive nature. Well, which like, is... It's, it's it's kind of ironic too because not that you don't have to be in shape to fly a plane, but they're not like soldiers on the battlefield you know like at this point like fighting is so far removed actually from like how many abs you have totally like uh, flying a fighter jet make no mistake is physically strenuous Mm -hmm. but it's more from the g-force and the physical quality of flying a a plane and yeah and i think that that quality though is there's there's this very specific subset of like cis gay white men <laughs> who have this weird sort of fashy thing going on with their sexuality where it's like it, you get the impression that they hate women so much that they only suck dick you know like hmm. and and it's it's i don't i don't mean to denigrate anybody like well it's happening denigration all, is happening not all he's denigrating uh, cis white gay men are like that but there is a particular subcategory mm-hmm. and and like there is a history of those particular gay men being fascinated by like military propaganda, uniforms, Aryanism, you know, mm. it's it's a, it's toxic in the community. <laughs> but it does it does exist. And this movie feels like it was built for that particular subset. And I, I think it's it's where the line gets blurred between hypermasculinity and homoeroticism where it is like mm. like most of the women i know don't like super muscular guys like this but the the me, the androsexual men whether bi or gay yeah. do you know yeah. it's it the this emphasis on muscularity appeals more to the male gaze than the female gaze right right so much of the dynamics of the film, even about the dog fighting, seems to be like proving masculinity because there's like a few totally. or like proving a particular like image of masculinity. There's like a couple comments in the film about how like, you know, this Top Gun program is all about still training men and dog fighting, even though pilots don't really dogfight yeah. anymore because that's not really how war like works, works. anymore. It's, yeah. just, it's a lot of air support, but remember World War II? And it's funny because I think in our culture has like a really intense like uh, nostalgia for kind of like World War II like yeah. in, in its kind of way of it's like... It's the last time that we... It's the last time that the American war machine justified its existence. Right, right. It's kind of like we were heroes and, and like all the men who fought in that war were heroes and... And so, like, everyone who's, like, joined the army since then to be a hero has kind of gotten stuck with these much more complicated, morally, like, repugnant wars and conflicts. And it's just funny because this film, even by referencing the dogfighting in World War II, felt like it was also falling into that same same nostalgia, being like, we have to keep the art of dogfighting alive. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) 
And and honestly, aerial combat is equated with sexuality. Like Goose says to Maverick once, like you live your life between your legs, meaning both his penis and the the throttle of his plane. Right. Right. Again, like it, it really is like the Spartans, the ancient Spartans, where it's it's all about war and masculinity and fucking each other. Yeah. Frankly, like I, I do, I do want to temper this conversation by saying, like, I don't think that. I, th- I think that the homoerotic undertones in this movie get played up a lot in the conversation because of this sort of – maybe you've observed this too. This thing where people try to get a rise out of homophobes by saying that the homophobes themselves are gay. Mm-hmm. Have you have you noticed this before? I'm sure you have. Yeah, it's funny. I, I think it actually used to be a lot more common like 10 or 15 years ago. Totally. And I think now there's a bit of a sense of some people just hate people. Yeah. And it's not oh, and it, there's something almost homophobic about assuming that hatred. Oh, it's very homophobic. Yeah, yeah, but um, but yes, I agree that definitely is. It's still a trend, but I think it was really powerful ten years ago. Oh yeah, yeah. ten years ago, I think it dominated the conversation. But even more recently, like I was listening to a different podcast about movies that I don't listen to anymore. Um, But they were talking about the Disney response to Don't Say Gay in Florida and how piss poor it was at first. And still is, frankly. Like, I don't know why people are giving them any credit now, but that's another show. (laughs) Uh, But they they said something about the Florida legislators and how, like, oh, you know, they're passing this gay to punish gay people. And I bet at least one of them is secretly gay, but they're doing this because this. And it's like... What the fuck are you talking about? No, this is a, a cabal of straight people enforcing heterosexuality. But of course, what do you expect from a, a tumor, a cishet white male? Yeah, I think, and this is maybe something you can cut out of the podcast if you want. It's been a while since I said that, I think, but um, and then said something. But I think in general, we kind of have to move away from this idea that like, oh, yeah, you know, anyone who's being homophobic. You know what? I'm going to not say that. I'm not going to say this thought. No, no. I think you're on to something. I think uh, finish the thought. I think it's a good one. Well, it's funny for work. I have actually been watching a ton of the abortion ban legislations, the Mm. um, basically, you know, the don't say gay legislation and also the increasing bans on gender affirming care for minors that are really just all of Mm. these things are sweeping across the country really quickly. And it's it's scary. And I think for all these issues, we're really used to like, like, I think we're really used to talking about abortion in a way that's like men are legislating women's bodies. But unfortunately, there's a lot of women right. who are extremely invested, who are really interested in legislating women's bodies, you know? Yeah. And, I, and I think when people say like, oh, I bet there's secretly a homophobe in there, there's this broken logic that uh, or sorry, I think when people say, oh, well, someone's secretly gay in the right. you know decision room, there's this broken logic that a gay person can't be part of a, like a homophobic movement or cause. Like it's the same way that there's like mm. a, this sense that women can't be part of misogynistic things. And it's like actually what we need to wrap our heads around is like people are really complex and have all different kinds of identities and also can even hurt the identity group that they might technically be a part of, you know? Absolutely. I think we've talked about that on this show before about how like the queer community in general is very supportive Mm -hmm. um, of people, even of different identities from yourself, but not always. And I think Mm -hmm. trans people in particular have been excluded from queer spaces for, for many, many, many years 
And so, you know, it's important to, to remember that, like, these forces of oppression aren't the product of a group of bad people getting together. They are systems that are in place and are enforced. Um, And they are enforced by people who in some cases haven't questioned them. Mm -hmm. And in some cases by people who recognize them for what they are and support them. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And, you know, you don't have to be of a particular identity marker to, support these systems of oppression. Right. Yeah. Because you can make, you can have a lot of success in this world if you are of a marginalized group and willing to sell out everyone else. Yeah. Yeah. CC Caitlyn Jenner. (laughs) Yeah. Big time. I mean, yeah, she just signed on to be a contributor at Fox and is very, yeah. So I don't know. It's interesting, but I I feel like I I led us on a digression where you were talking specifically. No, no, I think it's a very interesting digression. You like the digression. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because I think it's relevant not to this film, but to the conversation around this. Yes. Because, you know, I think that the homoeroticism in this film is obvious, but it's also banal, you know? Yeah, totally. It's very... It's it's a very boring version of homoeroticism. Yeah, it's like locker room homoeroticism. Exactly. Well, in a literal literally, sense, that many scenes literally. are set in locker rooms. <laughs> yeah, I think with that's why I said that. With little towels wrapped around their waist. I know, and they're, it's, they're strong abs. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing. It's it really is like this, like this, this, uh, like I, I don't, I don't use the term fascist lightly in this context. To be clear, I'm I'm using it because I think that it represents a fascist aesthetic mm. of power and presenting physical power and all forms of power as a good in and of themselves. Like I think you could watch, I, I think, uh, was it? It was um, Bruce Weber got referenced, but really you could look at Lenny Riefenstahl and see a lot of similarities in hmm. Olympia or Triumph of the Will to Top Gun. Yeah. And I, I don't say that, I don't, to be clear, I'm not saying Tom Cruise is a fascist. I'm not saying that Although. Scott is a fascist. <laughs> well, Tom Cruise is a Scientologist, which is a whole other thing. Um, I'm not saying anyone involved in this film was pro-fascism. Just like I'm not saying that any of them intended to make a homoerotic film. Yeah. But I think that the those elements are present. And so yeah. following sort of a death of the author logic, we have to look at them. No, totally. I think like, what about us? Well, what do I want to say? Yes. Or what do I want to say right now? Well, I I do think there's like fascist elements to this. Well, I don't know. I need to like better. I, you know what I need to do? Google search fascism because it's funny. <laughs> it's, it's actually really funny. We're having this conversation because literally early today, earlier today, I was like, I need to start reading up on fascism since it is yeah. coming to a state near you. You know, like yeah. we really are in the midst of a pretty intense like not just worldwide, but also extremely American style of fascism. Yeah. The Christian nationalist fascism. Yeah. I mean, we're like, and it's happening in state legislatures. It's happening in Oklahoma and Texas and Florida. And it's funny because I I think it's a word that I just kind of grew up with, but I haven't really gained an, an understanding of it beyond my like, 10th or 11th grade textbook that talked about yeah. that had a couple paragraphs on Italy during World War II, you know? Absolutely. I think, um, I mean, the best essay, period, the essay on fascism is Umberto Eco's Ur Fascism, you know, where he, mm. he lays out, I believe it's 12 common principles of fascism and talks about how it is sort of an anti-ideology. It's an ideology against ideas. Hmm. Um, but there are various 
themes that come up in it, like the cult of heroism, which is absolutely present in this movie, and the the fidelity to the fatherland, things like that. Right. Um, all things that are very pervasive in many, many cultures, but when you stir them together in just such a way. What's it called? Ur-fascism. You are hyphen fascism by Umberto Eco. Because I want to look. I'm just like, is there any point in going through it and talking about Top Gun one by one? <laughs> Actually, yeah, I would be very interested in that. Uh, let's do it. Here, I can send you the link. I just pulled it up. Perfect. We'll just like read off the top lines and talk about how yeah, it's... Yeah, I think it starts in the bottom of page five. Perfect. Ah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So this, I honestly... I'm very interested to see how this goes. I haven't read this essay in a few months. So. <laughs> Me too. And if it goes badly, we'll just cut it. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I have a good feeling about this. So the first feature of Ur-Fascism is the cult of tradition. I think we've already talked a bit about Top Gun's relationship to tradition. Yeah. I mean, it's literally about a son following in the footsteps of his father, a family tradition of not just serving in the military, but being a fighter, a pilot and being yeah. a and top, top gun school gun. is teaching the tradition, tradition. of dogfighting. Yeah. And, you know, and they're, they're constantly making side-eyed comments about Vietnam and what a failure it was because of X, Y, Z. Yeah. Number two, traditionalism implies the rejection of modernism. Both fascists and Nazis worship technology. However, even though Nazism was proud of its industrial achievements, its praise of modernism was only the surface of an ideology based on blood and earth. I think that that, that makes a lot of sense because they talk a lot about how fancy the planes are and how cool the planes are. But then they also talk about, I think there's a line where it's like, pilots have become too dependent on missiles. You know, you need to know how to use your guns. Right, and it goes back to what we said about the importance of dogfighting right. and how you have to go back to that style of uh, of warfare as opposed to the more modern approach. Right. Yeah. And, and how Maverick is an intuitive flyer rather than a you know, technical flyer and how all of these like very modern technical analyses are always wrong because he's always flying better than they could, the computer could imagine. Right, basically. right, totally. Irrationalism also depends on the cult of action for action's sake. I mean, action that's like maverick. beautiful in itself. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly the intuitive where it's doing something. Oh, wow. Considered. Look at this line. Thinking is a form of emasculation. Absolutely. He says. He there's says a line it. Where Maverick yeah. says, if you think up there, you're dead. Yeah. Oh, that's so funny. Um, this next one is very confusing to me. You have to read it. Okay. Uh, no syncretistic faith can withstand analytical criticism. In modern culture, the scientific community praises disagreement as a way to improve knowledge. For ur-fascism, disagreement is treason. Treason. So this is talking about the idea of like, you can't dissent, you can't argue, you have to accept, you know, you have to follow. I would say this movie doesn't do that as much mm. um, because it, it really is, in the end, a synthesis of the, analy- the, the like, yeah. the synthesis of the textbook pilot and the intuitive pilot is what saves the day. So it's, totally. it's complicated. I, I would say there are still some elements of, like, you know, bristling at being questioned and things like that, but uh, less clear. Besides, disagreement is a sign of diversity. So, yeah, Top Gun is a pretty white movie. There's, I think, one black character who has a speaking part. Yeah. Uh, And as uh, I believe 
Frank Rich again for Esquire wrote, even the heroine wore flyboy attire, though that did not deter the hero from sharing the film's climactic embrace with a fellow pilot, the impeccably Aryan-looking Val Kilmer. Mm-hmm. It is, it's uh, it's not a very diverse movie, mm-hmm. and not just because it was the 80s. I don't think number six applies. It says, your fascism derives from individual or social frustration. That is why one of the most typical features of the historical fascism was the appeal to a frustrated middle class. I actually think that one applies the most. Really? Because of Vietnam. Hmm. Because this is a movie made in the wake of Vietnam Hmm. when conservatives felt emasculated because America had lost a war. Mm -hmm. They claimed it wasn't a war. They claimed whatever. But – you know, and, uh, you know, there are even even a few lines like um, in Viper's monologue telling Maverick about his father, Maverick asked, like, why wasn't I told this? And he said, oh, you know, this is what happens when a war happens on the, the wrong the, side of the, the line. battle happens on the wrong side yeah. of a line, you know, like this frustration uh, and this sense that like. Uh, you know, this overwhelming sense that, you know, if we could just let these guys go fight the Russians, everything would be fixed, you know. Right. I, I actually think that there is a, this movie, even if it doesn't display that frustration, appeals to that frustration for sure. Totally. Totally. I, I, I think that that makes sense to me. Um, seven, to people who feel deprived of a clear social identity, your fascism says that their only privilege is the most common one, to be born in the same country. That definitely applies. Oh, yeah. There's so much conversation about America and so much star-spangled bullshit in this movie. It, it really is, like, constantly emphasized America, 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 America. Right. You're doing this for the country. And even every time they talk about, oh, the taxpayer p- p- pays for these planes, there's a lot of different ways they appeal to that. Yeah, this sense of this sense of nationalism. The followers must feel humiliated by the ostentatious wealth and force of their enemies. Well, I mean, there is a lot of conversation about the MIGs. Yeah, I do think it's I don't I do think this isn't one of the biggest ways like uh, points that apply to the film. But, yeah, they talk about how powerful the enemy MIGs are. Definitely. Uh, That's the thing. It, It definitely is not. But that's partly a product of the fact that there is no war, really. And so the the film is so internally focused rather than even directing that frustration at an enemy. Yeah. For ur-fascism, there is no struggle for life, but rather life is lived for struggle. Thus, pacifism is trafficking with the enemy. I do think that there is a – this is like, I mean, a subtle element of the film Mm -hmm. because – that's like part of what is so funny about Top Gun is that there is no ongoing war and yet they're all preparing for an eventual war. And there and is actually the, uh-huh. the next the next line of this paragraph is it is bad. Pacifism is bad because life is permanent warfare. And that's just the, what their lives are as Top Gun. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And and as as members of the armed forces of a standing military. Yes. Um, And that's presented as a good thing. Like, I think that's, again, present in that really callous response from Viper to Goose's death is like, you know, he he died for the struggle, for the constant struggle for greater prowess. Yeah. Ten, elitism is a typical aspect of any reactionary ideology insofar as it is fundamentally aristocratic and aristocratic and militaristic elitism cruelly implies contempt for the weak. 
Ur-fascism can only advocate a popular elitism. Every citizen belongs to the best people of the world. The member of the party are the best among the citizens. Every citizen can or ought to be a, become a member of the party. Since the group is hierarchically organized, according to a military model, every subordinate leader despises his own underlings and each of them despises his inferiors. This reinforces sense of mass elitism. Sorry, I'm probably going to cut. Yeah, well, it's funny. I think you read through that whole one because this one, I'm not sure really applies to the film. Yeah. Um, um, there are interesting ways to look at elitism, I think, especially through the lens of Kelly McCormick's character. Kelly I think, McGillis. <laughs> sorry, yeah. Sorry, Kelly McGillis's character. Oh, why did I get McCormick? Uh, but yeah, Kelly McGillis's character, she's the more educated. Mm-hmm. And she's really the most educated in the room also, almost every time, but it's kind of looked... Uh, down upon a bit yeah. as not having like I, I think this one is also kind of present in how Cougar is treated after his panic attack where there is sort of this conversation of like you know he held on too tight and lost the edge yeah you know this this idea of like we're the best because we we are not weak um it's definitely not as uh present I think that the relationship between superiors and inferiors in this military structure has that particular American brand of anti-authoritarianism where it's you you bump up against being given orders and yet still follow them and yet still never question why somebody else gets to give you orders. Yeah. And so the the good leader is presented as the paternal viper rather than uh, James Tolkien as uh, – I forget his character's name, but the, the CEO on the Enterprise – uh, who incidentally is the principal in Back to the Future, again contributing to the sense yeah. <laughs> that this is a sports movie. <laughs> uh, Eleven, in such a perspective, everybody is educated to become a hero. In every mythology, the hero is an exceptional being, but in your fascist ideology, heroes, heroism is the norm. This cult of heroism is strictly linked with the cult of death. Mm-hmm. Top Gun is all about the cult of heroism and is explicitly linked to the cult of death, where the way Viper treats Goose's death is that it is part of their business, yeah. that it is unremarkable and that the only thing to- that that Maverick needs to do is get over it. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's really like telling that Viper tells him this is going to be the first of many deaths. Right. Yeah. And again, this this is a this is a movie about education as well, where they're being taught to mm-hmm. be better pilots, to be heroes. Mm-hmm. You know, they're being you know really drilled into them to be heroes all the time. Since both permanent war and heroism are difficult games to play, the Ur fascist transfers his will to power to sexual matters. This is the origin of machismo, which implies both disdain for women and intolerance and condemnation of non-standard sexual habits, from chastity to homosexuality. Since even sex is a difficult game to play, the Ur fascist hero tends to play with weapons. Doing so becomes an ersatz phallic exercise. I mean, it's definitely true. I mean, in this film where he has a girlfriend the whole time and he's constantly talked about as like a stud, well, he's such a player, such a stud. We only see him have sex once and it's so uncomfortable. It's so stilted. Yeah, stilted. Um, But it's still it still has to be there because otherwise, what if Maverick doesn't have sex? Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing. And, you know, the one sexual scene in this sexually charged movie is just too cis het people doing it in missionary yeah. <laughs> as god intended open mouth kissing <laughs> oh, god. 
This one is very long and confusing to me. Yeah, 13, 13. I don't think is going to be particularly useful here. Yeah. Um, Ur-fascism is based upon a selective populism, a qualitative populism, one might say. As it's the idea that individuals as individuals have no rights and the people are, are conceived of as a quality, a monolithic entity expressing the common will. I think this can be seen a little bit in the way they talk about the taxpayer sure. or the government. Sure. Um, but again, this movie has so little concern with anything in reality that they don't think about the people they're quote unquote protecting. They just think about how good they look doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's even more narcissistic than a fascism aesthetic right. would be really. Right. 14. Your fascism speaks newspeak. Newspeak was invented by Orwell in 1984 as the official language of Ingsoc, English socialism. Yeah. So it's basically the idea that fascism uses a rudimentary dialect, a super simplified dialect, which I think is present in the jargon used in this movie a lot. Like a lot of emphasis is put on military slang, like Rio, like the hard, what's it called? The hardcore, you know, things like that. Um, Hard deck. Um, A lot of emphasis is placed on the way these guys talk. Yeah. Definitely. And they and like they all have these little nicknames. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. They have yeah. all these these nom de guerre call signs. Yeah. yeah. Um, that are like their true identities that have been uncovered basically. Like it, it's it's very rare to hear Pete Mitchell called Pete Mitchell. Like in fact, Kelly McGillis uses his name almost as an insult when he's resigned his commission. She's like, you know, see you later, Pete Mitchell. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that was a really interesting exercise, I think. What I, what do you take away from it? Well, it's interesting because I think um like I said, fascism is something I want to get more familiar with just in a know your enemy sense. Absolutely. Um but I think I've always thought of it as something very extreme and so I've always been a bit hesitant to label something. Mm-hmm. Fascism and I've always felt in the last, since really Trump was elected, I've also seen it used a lot in a way that's been actually a little more confusing to understand it. Absolutely. Not that it's being used incorrectly, but just when it's being used constantly for a lot of different Mm -hmm. scenarios. But it was really interesting reading through this because I can see how this film really like overlaps quite well with a fascist aesthetic. Yeah. Um, and I, th- I think it's important to say an aesthetic. Like this this movie yeah, exactly. reminds aesthetic. the aesthetic. We're not saying, not yeah. saying that anyone involved is a Nazi or supports the Nazis or would you know ever even consider saying that. But it's equally important to analyze how these things work their way into our culture unintentionally. Right. Because it primes us for the rise of actual fascists, like someone like Josh Hawley. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah, actual yeah. fucking fascists. Or Ted Cruz. I would yeah. go so far as to call both of them genuine fascists. Yeah. Yeah. So, no, I, th- I thought this was really interesting. But it's also just interesting to read through this and see how much I feel like any military yeah. has qualities of this list. Um, Absolutely. I think, um, you know, because militaries are so hierarchical yeah, uh, and so concretely regimented in their hierarchical steps Yeah, um, that it's quite revealing. And I, I think as somebody who grew up with military hierarchy as part of my life, that's partly why I ended up being an anarchist mm-hmm. because I was shown hierarchy at a very young age right. um, in right. its actual impact. And yeah. I realized how stupid it was, yeah. how useless it was and how inhuman it is. Yeah. You know, it reduces you to a function rather yeah. than a person. 
And so I think, um, you know, in, in the long, long span of military history, there are instances like Deruti's column during the Spanish Civil War of anti-authoritarian military units that were, you know, functional operational, like Makhno in Ukraine could also be an example. But it, it is interesting how the typical formation of a military hierarchy is so tied to the dehumanization of people. Yeah. Um, which is natural because, yeah, a military serves to kill people. That's, yeah. So that's why. That's why they be, devalue yeah. human life. Well, and I think it's interesting that you, having been exposed to hierarchy at such a young age, were then like, I'm going to pursue the famously non-hierarchical path of filmmaking. <laughs> no, I'm just messing with you. You know what's funny? You know what's funny is that actually has helped me in a lot of situations. Mm. You know, I've actually totally. been able to understand rooms better because – I had a power analysis. Yeah. That's the thing. It's yeah. not that I like it, but it, it helps me read a room. Totally. Um, because I know who's in charge, who has material power. Yes. And yeah. I hate them. No. <laughs> <laughs> You're no, like, I know seriously. who my enemy is. No, I, I really do believe that it, it's and, – and to be clear, I also want to say I think that I'm not the only one here. I'm not the only one who's been exposed to military hierarchy and has developed anti-authoritarian tendencies because of it. I right. think that the majority – of members of the American Armed Forces are anti-fascist and are anti-authoritarian because they've seen what the American war machine does. Yeah. I think that Top Gun doesn't appeal to veterans. It appeals to people who never joined up and still have a chip on their shoulder about it. Yeah. That's what I mean about this appeal to the middle class frustration, whereas actual vets, I think, all of the veterans I know, including my parents, uh, have a better understanding of human obligation to one another, mm. you know? I think that the the other element of a military environment is mutual aid mm. because it's one of the few spaces in American culture that isn't alienated mm. and where the people around you are there to help you. Yeah, And so it is really, it's a very interesting psychological quagmire where mm. you're experiencing both the far left universal healthcare and the far right weapons of war at the same time. Right, right. That's really interesting. Yeah, it was funny when I was like really doing my deep dive on uh, Goose's death and the real possibility of it, just yeah. reading through kind of veterans' takes on the film. And I really got the sense that there's so much in this film that is closer to military propaganda yeah. than real life, even though there might be like, you know, the camaraderie yeah. might be similar. There was someone writing like, you don't understand, like when you're training people on like $30 million planes, like there is really no kind of like encouragement of, of messing those planes up, you know, like we're not like encouraging that behavior. Like yeah. there's no kind of pushing risk, which obviously that's just one person on the internet, but yeah. it was also interesting reading people's comments saying like, yeah, well, those planes sucked and the military didn't want to spend more money on better planes and yeah. people died because of it, you know, because they cared more about a plane. Yeah. And I definitely got the sense that, you know, if there were kids in the eighties who enlisted because of Top Gun, they uh, were severely disappointed yeah, in most cases. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great note to actually end on. Yeah. Um, so shall we I, I think. Oh uh, God! I forgot we were gonna have to do this for this film. <laughs> I know. Mary fuck kill. I think it's the most top. I mean, Top Gun is the perfect movie for it because it's a it's a movie about getting married, fucking somebody, and getting killed. Oh my uh, God! 
So I think uh, uh, let's do the obvious one this week. Let's do Maverick, Iceman, and Charlie. Oh. Kelly McGillis. God. Oh. You go first. You go first. <laughs> I want to kill this movie. <laughs> Honestly, yeah. Uh, I'd probably... Uh, I'd probably marry Charlie because again she's an astrophysicist, and I could pro. I feel like she would be the most likely to get out of the military at some point. Mm-hmm. I would. I, I would fuck Iceman and kill Maverick because Maverick's so fucking annoying. Honestly, I usually default kill, but uh, this time I'm gonna actually choose. I'm gonna choose default fuck this week. Violence in the spirit uh, of the military. And choose I mean, he doesn't respect consent. He follows Kelly McGillis into the bathroom at the bar. That was a very eighty scene. I was like, yeah. oh wow, we're not doing that anymore. Thank oh yeah, God. that's no good. That's yeah. not. That's not great. That's bad. Um, yeah, he he's disrespectful to everyone around him. He's obnoxious he's narcissistic yeah i'm i'm killing maverick and and eh, val kilmer was pretty in the 80s i'll fuck him (laughs) yeah what about you um i think i would definitely marry charlie because i get queer energy from her anyways and um oh i know oh god and then I would eject. <laughs> <laughs> I would I would eject uh, Iceman. I just find him so annoying. Yeah, he's weird. And then that leaves me with the night of wonder with Maverick. <laughs> a blue stilted, blue washed wonder. Ugh. Set to the unforgettable sounds of Berlin. Oh, Take my, my breath God. away. Take my breath. Is that is this movie like what got that song so famous? Oh or? yeah, it won an Oscar. That song. This movie did not win an Oscar, that song. This movie won an Oscar for best original song for Berlin's Take My Breath Away. The Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences looked at Kelly McGillis and Tom Cruise's slow open mouth kiss and thought, the soundtrack to this scene is incredible. Oh, God. Fuck the Academy. <laughs> so we'd like to thank the Academy, but yeah. more so, we'd like to thank you for listening. Uh, for if listening. you like the show, please consider uh, like, subscribe, however you can interact on your chosen platform. Please do. If you really love the show, please consider heading over to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash snails oysters. Throw us five bucks a month and you'll get, what do you'll get? You'll get my movie reviews and you'll get a new bonus episode of our podcast every month. Uh, where Ali and I talk about our favorite, favorite movies of all time. And he'll get my number. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Direct chat line. What if I was like, <laughs> you can text me whenever you want. Um, thanks to everyone who subscribes. Um, thank you, Billy, for our beautiful theme music. And thank you, Abby Austin, for our beautiful artwork and both of their social media handles. Are in our or, or in our episode notes, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah, in our episode notes. Although one of them is barely on social media, but you know, <laughs> is it the one that you're dating? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Both yeah. our social medias and the show's Twitter handle are in that description. Uh, Snails and oysters is at snails oysters on Twitter. Shoot, hit us a tweet if you you know disagree with one of our takes. You have a movie suggestion for us, uh, or. You think, <laughs> or you you have a, a an, another instance of fascist aesthetic in Top Gun. Until next time, I'm Matt Roberts, and I'm Allie Rogers, and, and thank you for for being, being a, a bye, bye ally, ally. <laughs> in the fight against fascism. Yeah. <laughs>